Hello, welcome to The Brain Doc. I am your host, Dr. Athney, a board-certified neurologist. This podcast series will talk about random stuff, some medical, some non-medical. So buckle up and enjoy the series. Take a hypothetical journey with me. Let's suppose you're an expectant mother, you're nine months pregnant, and your quote-unquote water breaks. You rush to the hospital, your baby's born. A beautiful baby, and the doctor puts the baby in your arms. And you realize that the baby has no arms or legs. This kind of horrific hypothetical situation is not a dream or fantasy. It was actually a common occurrence in the late 1950s in Europe. As all expectant mothers know, morning sickness is a very common side effect of pregnancy. And in the late 1950s, a lot of German mothers who experienced morning sickness during their pregnancy took an over-the-counter medication called thalidomide. So how did this happen? How did this drug get on the market? And more amazingly, why didn't it happen in this country, the United States? So let's discuss a little bit of history. In 1957, thalidomide was first marketed in Germany. Well, it was West Germany um, at the time because it was not yet reunified. And it was available over the counter. And when it was released, it was released as an amazing medication for morning sickness, for pregnancy-induced morning sickness. And in their initial evaluation of this medication, they felt, they as in the drug maker, felt it was safe during pregnancy. And then after it was given to a few thousand people in Europe in the late 1950s, they noticed that a lot of the babies from mothers who took thalidomide during the pregnancy were born without limbs. And this was absolutely horrific. So very quickly, 1961. So it came on the market in 57. So four years later, in 1961, it was taken off the market. Although exact numbers are not known, but it is estimated that approximately 10,000 children were born with major birth defects from mothers who took thalidomide. And about 40% of them died at the time of birth. So why didn't this drug make it to the U.S. market? Well, we have to thank a reviewer at the FDA, whose name was Francis Oldham Kelsey. You see, in 1960, the FDA was a very small department within our government. At that time, the FDA only had seven full-time physicians. That's it. That's nothing. And Kelsey was hired in 1960 to be one of these seven employees. When she came on board to the FDA, 
as a reviewer of newly submitted medications for approval, one of her first duties was to review this medication called thalidomide. The submission for approval was a clinical indication to be used in pregnant women for morning sickness. With only seven full-time physicians, there really wasn't a lot of scrutiny on medications prior to Dr. Kelsey coming on board. There was a lot of pressure from the drug manufacturer, Grunenthal, to get this drug approved as quickly as possible. But Dr. Kelsey insisted on learning more about the medication and its nervous system related side effects. More specifically, she wanted to know whether the drug was harmful to the fetus. Although there was a huge number of babies being born without limbs in Europe, there really was not a clear association made between the drug thalidomide and these birth defects. With Dr. Kelsey's insistence and demands, a detailed study was performed which finally showed a huge link between the drug and these birth defects. Researchers during this evaluation period discovered that thalidomide crossed the placenta from the mother's body, mother's blood, into the baby's blood, which then caused all these birth defects. Because of her insistence and persistence, a huge catastrophe was prevented. So the credit completely goes to Dr. Kelsey and the FDA. The original FDA was created in 1906 by President Roosevelt when he signed into law the quote, Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, end quote, also called the Wiley Act. This act basically prohibited the interstate transport of food that had been changed or, quote, adulterated, end quote. In 1938, the other President Roosevelt signed the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. This law basically increased the federal regulatory authority over drugs by mandating a pre-market review of the safety of all drugs. With this 1938 act, the FDA began to designate certain drugs as safe for use only under the supervision of medical professionals. But the act really did not have any teeth or any major regulatory um, authority. In 1962, after the amazing stoppage of thalidomide from entering the US market by the FDA and Dr. Kelsey, there was a new amendment to the FDA, which is called the Kefauver-Harris Amendment. This represented a revolution in FDA regulatory authority. The biggest change, and probably the most important change, was the requirement that all new drug applications demonstrate substantial evidence of the drug's efficacy for the marketed indication. That last part is very important because it's not just that the drug needs to be approved, 
but it needs to be approved for a specific marketed indication, which means the drug company must tell the FDA why they want the drug to be approved, not just the fact that they want it approved. In addition, this amendment basically required pre-marketing demonstration of safety. The implementation of this amendment to the FDA basically marked the beginning of the current form of the FDA approval process. That prologue now brings us to the next big topic, which is clinical trials. When we talk about clinical trials, we are very specifically talking about biomedical or behavioral research prospective on human participants. So prospective means looking forward, retrospective is looking backwards, but these clinical trials are looking forward, meaning the trial is set up and the patients are being monitored in real time over a period of one year, two years, three years, whatever long it takes to get the data that is needed. Clinical trials are needed for all new treatments, including new vaccines, like the ones we experienced during the COVID years, new drugs, new dietary choices, new dietary supplements, and medical devices or medical hardware. Clinical trials generate data on the dosage, on the safety, and its efficacy. Clinical trials can vary in size and cost. They can be in one research center or multiple centers. They can be in one country, multiple countries. The cost for clinical trials can range into the billions, that's right, with a B, billions per approved drug. In broad terms, there are roughly five phases of human clinical trials. Phase zero enrolls about 10 to 15 patients, and the major goal is to assess the medication's pharmacodynamics, which means what the drug does to the body, and pharmacokinetics, which means what the body does to the drug. Phase one, which is the second phase, consists of enrolling about 20 to 50 patients, and we're trying to evaluate safety, as well as determine what is an effective and safe dosage range. During this phase, as well as all other phases, we are also trying to identify any side effects that may be caused by this medication. Phase two, which is the third phase, is the phase in which we're trying to assess actual dosing requirements and to determine whether or not the drug actually works. The next phase, called phase three, is the final confirmation of safety and efficacy. During this phase, approximately 1,000 to 3,000 patients are enrolled, and the trial can take many years to complete. At the end of phase three, 
all the data starting from phase zero, phase one, phase two, and finally phase three is all submitted to the FDA. The FDA then takes a number of months to review all the data by a number of experts on the field to determine whether the claim that the drug company is making for this drug is actually accurate and true and whether it is safe to be put on the market for human consumption. Most drugs have some side effects. Now, the majority of drugs have tolerable side effects and hence the effect or the beneficial effect of the medication is definitely worth the small amount of side effects you may incur. But sometimes these drugs cause a lot of serious side effects. That's where the concept of risk-benefit ratio comes into play. The risk-benefit ratio is the concept of assessing a drug's risk, meaning side effects, versus the drug's benefit, meaning its efficacy and effectiveness. If the benefit from the drug outweighs the risk that it poses, then the drug gets approved. Other than an emergency use approval, your typical drug cannot be prescribed by any physician until it has received FDA approval. Once any drug has received FDA approval, a licensed physician in this country can prescribe the medication. So just because a drug is approved does not mean that the physician prescribing it knows how to prescribe it. Every drug has its list of side effects. Every drug has its list of when to use it. Every drug has its list of, you know, safety concerns or monitoring concerns, etc., etc. So how does a physician learn about a drug, whether it be an old drug or a new drug? Well, first I want to differentiate between the concept of learning about a drug and the concept of marketing a drug. You might ask, well, what's the difference? Well, there's a huge difference. You see, drug companies want to sell you a medication. And if it's a prescription medication, the only way they can sell you the drug is through the physician. So drug companies market the drug to physicians through drug reps or advertisements or, you know, if you're at a conference, uh, there are a lot of advertising booths at the conference, etc., etc. As an aside, TV advertisements are one of the biggest ways that drug companies market the drug, both to patients and to physicians. Before 1997, drug companies were not allowed to advertise on TV. Only in 1997 did the FDA first allow the practice of direct-to-consumer advertising. Nowadays, I'm sure, no matter what TV show you watch, there are a gazillion ads for various medications. But back to, how does a physician get educated on the drug? Well, when the FDA approves any medication, it puts out a document called the Prescribing Information, or better known as the PI. For the non-physician, the PI also stands for package insert. This is that small piece of paper that's all folded in 
origami style that's stuffed inside your uh, medication. This document is actually a legal document. It contains all the information needed and available for prescribing this particular medication. So it contains what it's used for, the dosage, the dosing, the frequency, side effects, complications, etc., etc. This document can be 60, 70, 100 pages long. So how do you interpret the information from this document? How do you read this document? Well, I tell my students that this document contains really three parts. The first part at the top contains all the data that you need to prescribe the medication. It's the summary of what you have to know to prescribe the medication. This first part may be about a page or maybe a page and a half. The second section is the bulk of the document. This is probably 90-95% of the document. This second section contains all the clinical data, all the clinical trials, and all the minutia that most of us don't really need to know on a day-to-day -day basis. But that second section is there in case you have to look up something very quickly or easily. The third section, which is probably the most important section for patients, is at the bottom of the document. It's about two, three pages long, and it's usually in a what's called an FAQ format, or frequently asked questions format. This third section, basically the FAQ section, answers many of the commonly asked questions by patients to doctors. So it's already in writing and it's written up by the FDA in a very nice, concise manner. So to summarize how to use this PI or prescribing information, well, if you're a physician, you really need to know that first part of the PI for every single drug that you prescribe. And if you don't know that first part, the side effects and the complications, then you really should not be prescribing this medication. For the patient, I would avoid the first section and second section because it contains way too much minutia. And for the patients, I recommend that they go straight to that third section where, you know, a lot of the commonly asked questions are answered in a very nice, simple way. And if you have more questions, then ask your physician, as opposed to trying to decipher what's in Section 1 or Section 2. I will conclude this podcast at this time. In a future episode, we'll talk about various medications and how some drugs can be used on-label versus off-label and what that really means. If you found this podcast educational, informative, or just plain fun, please subscribe to The Brain Doc on your app of choice, whether it be Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever other app you use. Thank you for listening, and please come back for more episodes of The Brain Doc.